0: The Genesis Foundation was founded by John Studzinski, CBE, in 2001. Over the past 20 years, the Foundation has donated more than £20 million to the arts. Through its funding and partnership model, it's enabled opportunities for thousands of young artists in theatre and music, building both their experience and their resilience. The Foundation's main focus is on partnerships with leading arts organisations such as the Young Vic, National Theatre, Almeida Theatre, Lambda and The Sixteen, and on training programmes that equip emerging artists for life as a creative professional. One of the newest partners is Jewish Book Week, and in April 2021, the Genesis Foundation and Jewish Book Week announced a new programme to champion and support emerging writers in the UK. The Genesis Jewish Book Week Emerging Writers Programme offers bursaries and mentorship to 10 emerging writers over 18 years of age of any background writing fiction, non-fiction, and poetry. In this latest episode of Artistic Minds, the acclaimed novelist and one of the Emerging Writers Programme's mentors, Tracy Chevalier, discusses the roles of mentor and mentee with Dr Karen Skinazi, with whom she's been working Karen is a Senior Lecturer and the Director of Liberal Arts at the University of Bristol. A literary and cultural critic, she specialises in Jewish, multi-ethnic, American and women's literature and culture. Her novel, her first work of fiction, is called Ness. Ness opens with a 9-11 widow, Shana, awash in grief seeking inspiration from her two grandmothers. The narrative then takes us back a century to follow the lives of Shana's grandmothers. In interwar Poland, we meet Fania, who, after witnessing a pogrom in her early childhood, desires little more than to cast off her Jewish difference and assimilate into Polish life. In Egypt, we find Fortunée, a Syrian immigrant who has come to Cairo with her bitter abandoned mother and four sisters in the hope of a better life for women and for Jews. Nes, the Hebrew word for miracle, also etymologically linked to the word for test or trial, is rich with the dreams and desires, as well as the acute dangers and devastating tragedies that faced Jewish women over the course of the 20th century. The focus of Karen and Trace's Zoom conversation is how they found the experience of working on the novel together.
1: Karen, hello. I think this is our f- third meeting online, but we have done had a lot of email back and forth. So I wanted to start this conversation by asking, um, why did you want to have a mentor? um, And what were you hoping to get out of it?
2: I guess I've been one of those writers who's been writing her whole life in a very secret way. Um, And even when I started working on this novel, my husband refers to the novel with quotation marks around it. (laughs) <laughs> I think it was just a very private thing, almost like keeping a diary for me, that something I, I, I've probably written since I was a kid, I kept all the little notebooks and so on, but it was like uh, Jane Austen writing under her blotting paper, you know, it, was, it wasn't something that I really imagined for public consumption. But then, I guess when the pandemic started, I began writing in much more earnest and I got to about 200 pages in, and I sent a message to a, a colleague of mine at at Bristol, Mimi Thebo, She's uh, she does creative writing. She's a writer, and I said to her, "What what does one do at this point? I have I have about 200 pages. I, I think I actually have a novel here." <laughs> What next? Like, I feel like someone should see it. And she said, Absolutely, you need to find a reader, you need to find a group, or you need to find a mentor. And I'm like, Ah, oh, yes, a mentor. That is what I want. And I, I kid you not, maybe one week later I was reading. Um, a woman named Erica Dreyfus runs she has a newsletter that's called the The Practicing Writer, and I saw a blurb for this program, the the Genesis Jewish Book Week Emerging Writers Program, I saw the theme was beginnings, which is exactly what I think about in this novel. And I saw, quite frankly, your name on it. And I said, wow, that would be a dream come true to have Tracy Chevalier, who I've been reading for 20 years read my work, give me feedback. I honestly can't imagine anything more ideal. And sent it off and just thought, all right, I'm not even going to think about this because it would be too wonderful. I just, I don't, I don't even want to imagine it could be real. Wow. But why me specifically
1: then? Because of our historical background?
2: I think because, yeah, it's, well, it's two things. So I read, like millions of other people, Girl with a Pearl Earring, many years ago. And I've read other novels of yours. And I felt like they do two things that I love. One is really immerse you in a world, a world that is unfamiliar to me and probably most readers, and immerse you in the colors and the textures, the smells. I mean, I really felt in these worlds that you created. And the writing is so beautiful. And so that was one of the things that really appealed. But then of course, the other thing that's very appealing to me, and this is appealing to me as a scholar, as a person, is I found that your books really delve into the lives of people about whom we know so little. So Obviously, Girl with a Pearl Earring, everybody thinks of Vermeer. They think of the painter. They think of the painting. They might even think of the patronage, which is what you started with. We don't think about who is this girl who's in the painting, right? And you give her a life. You give her meaning. So Vermeer is, of course, a a historical personage. Um, We know him. We don't know her. We don't even think about her, right? But I, I feel like a lot of your novels really do that, right, in... A single thread, thinking about the surplus women, thinking about these women who were, again, real people, maybe not famous people, not famous at all, in fact. But why don't we think about their lives? Where are they in the historical record? Right? So I think that those are the things that really mattered to me that made me feel like this is someone who shares a passion with me that must have felt very lucky
1: then that I did choose you because they sent me a few different applications. And there was a, another application I was very tempted by simply because it was a comic novel and I don't know how to write funny. And I thought it'd be a great challenge for me to try to give advice and to help. And, and then I thought, I, that's not really fair to that writer either. Whereas I know what I could do with you. And you know, some people are further along in their novels and their ideas and, and the writing style than others. And, and you were way further along in, in some instances than some of the others. And I thought this is also, it's not that it's going to be easier, but there's something really meaty to work with here. So I was looking forward. I thought that, that, that this match makes
2: a lot of sense. Actually, what what made you decide to do the program in the first place? What did you have this idea? I want to be a mentor. I have
1: never mentored before, and I don't teach very much either, because I think I've always been lucky in, first of all, not needing financially to do it. And I thought there are a lot of other writers who need the work, so I should just step back and let them do it. It also can be very draining, as you know from being a professor yourself. It's a really demanding work, and I have writer friends who have said, you know, have taught it say on Arvon or other organizations, other writing classes, they do creative writing classes, and they said it's just absolutely drains you. And, and I thought maybe I just need to conserve my energy. And, and I, but then I thought, you know, more recently I thought I do want to give back in a more constructive way to the writing community. So when Jewish Book Week contacted me and said we're being funded by the Genesis Foundation to have these uh, mentors help writers over the year, I just thought maybe this is, you know, I landed in my email box at just the right time. And I thought maybe now's the time. So I'm really glad I'm doing it. But I wanted to ask you also about, you have been in the teaching position for a long time. What's it like to actually switch to being the student in some ways? Although I don't think that our relationship is exactly like the relationship you have with your students, because we're both older and more, you know, more established. Do you feel like you bring anything to this, like suddenly switching to not having the teacher role? Does it make it easier, harder, or is it uh, just different?
2: I think it makes me reflect on it a lot, particularly as, as you say, I'm usually the one giving feedback, trying to get students to rethink an idea or to stretch something out or to cut, cut being probably the hardest part of, of that bit of feedback. Um, So I supervise dissertations, which is a long relationship where we're looking at drafts and talking through ideas and I'm suggesting reading. And so there are a lot of similarities in that relationship. But then being the mentee in this relationship, there's something very humbling about it. And I think it's actually really good for my teaching because it reminds me how it feels to have somebody else look at your work and give you feedback to help you make it better even when some of it can be painful, right? um so just in thinking (laughs) have you found some of this painful (laughs) just thinking about right like I have as you know a propensity to bring in a lot of languages into my writing um there's Arabic there's French there's Yiddish there's Polish there's German there's Hebrew right and in my mind it's helping create this world in which these women navigate all these different linguistic cultures and and environments and having you read it and say, but take some of this out. And I think, yeah, actually, I have to step back and say, this is what it is to read, not to write it, to read this, right? Yeah. And it's really yeah. hard to do when you're immersed in it. And also you have an idea, right? You have this idea, this is how it should work.
1: It's not just language, but also uh, geographic geography, yeah. culture, Jewish culture, Arabic culture, Egyptian culture, Polish culture there's so much packed into this book. I guess I'm your first reader in some ways and I'm the one, and I'm sort of going, "Whoa, I have a thing about italics. I really hate them. I think they break up the reading experience." So I'm constantly trying to get you to to take stuff out, to to like if you don't really need that information, should we maybe just pull it out and it's important and maybe that's what this relationship is doing is that I am you I'm your reader I'm your', your scrutinizing and suggesting reader who giving you constructive criticism I think my biggest worry about this uh, and I, is that you would not take on board anything I say so I feel like you know, I'm just pissing in the wind or whatever. It's just like this is never, you know, because I, I hate to say it, I've had that happen before, not in a formal mentoring situation. But I have had in the past, I have read people's stuff and they just kind of get recalcitrant and they hunker down even more and defend. And I think what's also equally important to not giving in, but, but saying, yes, that makes sense. I'm going to change that is also learning how to fight your corner, too you say, actually, the reason I'm doing this is for this reason, and I feel pretty strongly about it, so I'm going to keep it, but I'm keeping in mind what you said. And, and that's uh, important as well as saying, you're absolutely right, i got to make this change. So getting that balance right is crucial, but it's not always easy. And so I'm grateful that you're willing to listen to me, because not everybody is. <laughs>
2: <laughs> well, I, I listen very hard. <laughs> yeah, it's really good. And I did, I should say, when I looked at your line edits, I didn't use all of them. I would say vast majority, but certain ones, some I left, but some I simply took a moment and it took me a long time to go through those edits. I took some time to think about why did it not work for you? Sometimes I didn't want to cut it, but I wanted to make it much clearer or fit better or sometimes... Again, thinking about this, you don't need all the languages and all the context, a little gentler on the reader, right? How can it be there without being so hit the reader over the head with it?
1: Well, I think this brings us to one of the points that we have the most in common about um, with our, our respective writing, and and that's the writing about the past. And an enormous amount of what you and I are doing is researching, finding out about stuff, and then communicating that to the reader but doing it in a way that's not pushing it that's not sort of trying to be educational but is but is is providing the context in which to create a world in your head that's a, that's the story and uh, and peopling that that with characters you understand and care about and uh, I'm guessing that's partly why you wanted to work with me, is, was, is because I've been through this many times. I've, I've written 10 novels, I'm writing an 11th, and I've had to do the research. So I thought we could talk maybe a little more specifically about your novel-ness, what you're working on, which is kind of based loosely on the lives of your grandmothers, although there's a contemporary section that it is very different in tone and kind of ties it together. And I wanted to ask you what drew you to write about the past rather than about the present?
2: I think part of it is my own general interest and in my scholarly writing too. So I've I spent years working on uh, researching, finding the original writings of, of the two earliest Asian North American writers, two half Chinese, half British women who wrote in Canada and the U.S., I loved finding out about their lives and what they were writing. They were activists, and one of them was. And then I worked on another writer who was also from turn of the 20th century. She was a, a Jewish writer uh, who was involved in the, in the women's suffrage movement. I've just always been really interested in those kinds of stories that are... We can have a kind of critical distance to look back on and think about, but also... And I think this is the challenge, and and I'd love to hear what you think about it also. I think one of the challenges is we, we as humans, as a species, kind of judge things from the end point, right, looking back. So we said, you know, my grandmothers, one of my grandmothers went through the Holocaust. Obviously, I only met her many years after the Holocaust. And the Holocaust changed everything. Um, And in many ways, I feel like changed everything that came before it. Right. So that when I would ask her about her life or changed our perspective, changed our perspective, but also her yeah. perspective. Right. So when I would ask her about her family members, the main thing she said was Hitler killed them all. I didn't know their personalities. Mm-hmm. I didn't know what their daily lives were like. And, and it was as if they started at the very end of their lives because they were murdered in such a brutal fashion that colored everything. And when I wrote my academic book about representations of Jewish women in literature and film, uh, I dedicated it to my grandmother and I found this picture of her. I have very few pictures from before the war, but I found this picture of her. It's not a great picture. I mean, her eyes are closed. She blinked at exactly the wrong moment, but she's standing with two of her sisters in front of these trees and her face is just bathed in sunlight. And she just looks carefree in a way that I never really saw her, I didn't see that person. And it's sort of those moments that inspire me to say, what else was life like before? Before we know what we know, how can we put ourselves in that moment, in that moment where you don't know what's coming, right? And and how can we imagine Mm -hmm. that moment before we know what we know? I don't know if you've ever thought about it in that way, writing about the past in that way?
1: Not exactly, although it's given me a lot to think about, just you saying it the way you, you have. I mean, the, the way I tend to look at it is that we as humans are, are obsessed with the present and, and living the moment, or we're obsessed with the future and what we're going to do, but we don't look backwards very often. And uh, I tend to imagine us as a kind of dot in the moment, and then if you think of it as a dot and then you're looking forward to the future, that gives you a two-dimension, so it gives you a little bit more something. But it gives you even more if you look to the past because you can triangulate it and make it into a 3D. And you, it's like I say, you become, by being interested in the past and where we've all come from, you become a fuller, more rounded person. And so I tend to see it as I'm constantly trying to convince readers that the past is as interesting as the present is and and as interesting as the future and so I'm trying to create a world that they can believe in and make a bridge between now and the past so that it gives the relevance that people need to to take interest in it it makes them better people so but without preaching yeah and that's a key to writing about the past or, or writing anything really is any anytime a reader senses that you have an agenda. I hate books that have agendas. I just, you know, I blip over that stuff where I stop reading. I don't want to be told what to do and what to think because the whole idea of reading a book is that you get the chance, the opportunity to create this world in your own head the world I imagine in my head of, of your novel mess is not going to be exactly what you have imagined. But that's the whole point is you're writing it, you hand it to me, you hand it to a reader, and we have our own experience. We make our own film of the of the book. And that's the beauty of writing. But to, to give it, to, to just have too much of an agenda is not, it's like you want to entertain and educate, but you don't want to have the educate be uh, the top Thing And you don't want it. You need it to be stealthily done and creep up on you. And I, I think that's kind of when I've been reviewing what you've been writing. My feeling is that you've done a little bit too much educating us. Or you have to do it in a slightly subtler way. Like you don't have to lecture us. It's hard. And I mean, in fact, twenty I, I years to of a career about, in
2: higher education.
1: <laughs> well, that's what I wanted to say. Is you've been a, a professor and in higher education for many years, and you're teaching students. That's your job. And you've also written nonfiction. So what's the the shift to to writing fiction how has that been for you has it worked do you feel like do you, how is it different writing um, this novel from writing what you've written before I
2: mean I think the challenge is exactly what you say which is I want part of me really wants to say hey everyone listen up because you have something to learn here not a moral per yeah. se it's not that I want to you know push a particular agenda in that sense um, but I do when I write about Fortunae's character and her life in, in Syria and Egypt, this is something that I am very conscious that few people will have good insights into or, or just knowledge of. Um, particularly when I think about Jewish literature and I, I've spent the last, I don't know, nine years working on Jewish literature there's a term that gets thrown about called Ashkenormative and it means there's a real bias towards (laughs) the culture of Eastern Europe, uh, towards the Ashkenazi culture. And that's the culture that has been very prolific. That's the culture that's dominant in North America, in Britain. So it's also, and and it's the one with a, a voice and even in places like Israel, where it's split between Ashkenazi and this other group, Mizrahi, um, it still has always been the Ashkenazis in power in that country. So that has been the dominant voice. So trying to tell a story from a very marginalized position, it's hard to do it with a light touch because I... Can't assume reader knowledge almost in any of it. And even if we read a little bit about that world, it's not going to be about the women in it, right the the everyday women in it. So that's hard. It's been hard for me, yeah, but is there
1: anything more freeing about writing fiction because you get to make it up? Oh, too. absolutely I mean, <laughs> this is the thing about this is the thing about historical fiction is that yes, we have to do all this research, but we also get to fill in the gaps yeah. and, you know, make up care. We get to create characters who can do things that real people haven't been able to do. I mean, that's one of my joys in, in writing novels is that I, as a, for instance, I wrote a novel called Remarkable Creatures about a fossil hunter, Mary Anning, who lived in Lyme Regis all her life. And when you write about somebody real, you do sort of have to stick to the facts. Uh, if you If you make up somebody you can have them do the things that you can't have your real-life character do. Um, so in in Remarkable Creatures, Mary Anning has a friend named Elizabeth Philpot, who actually did also exist. She was a real person, so I had to stick to the facts with her, too. But on the other hand, um, we know very little about her. So as an example, there was a very important paleontological or geological meeting in London that I really wanted Mary to go to and of course she didn't and I know she didn't. She only went to London once in her life for 5 days and it was not during the time of the novel. So I thought well I can't have Marianne and go if we know that she didn't. I don't want to break that law. That's a tough rule to break, you know, to actually have your character do something that you know they didn't do. But we don't know what Elizabeth was up to. So maybe she went to that meeting and sat in the hallway and got pneumonia as a result. So i'm going to have her go and that's the the kind of joy of of creating people um who who fill in the gaps and it's with those fictional characters that you can be more playful and and do what you need them to do
2: i've i've dropped in some historical figures here and there but mostly just in relation to my own fictional characters right how do they interact yeah. with them what would they say to them that's the kind of thing that i'm really interested in thinking about what would it be like if
1: yeah well i'm i'm writing a novel now set in venice and um and i've dropped casanova into okay. it but you know i i could everybody's written about casanova he doesn't need to be there but he he has one very small but important role and and then so i just touch on him and then off he goes and you never hear from him again, but he has an effect. And that's hugely fun and satisfying to sometimes bring in the real people because you, when you do that, you know, especially if it's somebody as famous as Casanova, you know that your readers are bringing certain assumptions and all their information about Casanova and their stereotypes and stuff to the reading experience. So, you as the writer you also have to keep that in mind too that you can try to push them in a different direction or surprise them with something different but those expectations those that information is always there and i think i think you have that a huge amount with writing a book that's set in the middle east because so many people have so many different views about the middle eastern history and Jewish Arab history and every you know all the different countries and how complicated how different Syria is from Egypt and all of that stuff is something that you must be aware when you're writing that the reader is going to bring their own views to and that's that can be very hard but you you also can play with it too.
2: And Tracy I wanted to ask you um as you said I have a kind of frame story I have this it's not quite contemporary. It's 2002 that pulls together the different threads. And in your first novel, which, you know, I read quite recently, The Virgin Blue, you also have a, you go back and forth between a contemporary story and then a story set in the past. Um, But then by the time you move on to Girl with a Pearl Earring, we start in the 17th century and we stay there. Mm -hmm. Um, and, And that That seems to be your pattern since you stay in a particular historical moment rather than create some kind of, you know, relatable character that the reader might latch on to. So what made you make that shift and and never go back?
1: Well, yeah, it's interesting because I started The Virgin Blue. I never thought I was going to be a historical writer. I wasn't more interested in history than other people. And The Virgin Blue is really going to be a contemporary story about a woman who's researching her family history, her French family history. But I thought, oh, well, I better sprinkle a little historical sections in here just to give people a flavor. And so I started writing them, and then they got a little bit bigger, and I realized I have to do research to do this. And um, uh, I just famously remember writing the first scene, which is of these peasants coming in 16th century France or coming in from the fields and they sit down to have a meal. And I thought, oh, what do they sit on? Do they sit on benches or stools or chairs? What did they have in the 16th century? And then I thought, you know, I don't even know if they used forks then. So I have to look up whether they used knives and forks and cutlery did they even eat at that time of day? What did they eat? And like all of these questions, I had no idea what. And I thought, oh God, you've got a lot of research to do. So I started doing the research and actually found I really, really loved it. Uh, The research gives me ideas and it also allowed me to step away from myself more. And I think... After *The Virgin Blue* came out, a lot of people would say, "Oh, Tracy, you are Ella Turner, the contemporary woman. Um, you have French background, similar age." And, uh, and I said, "No, no, no. I imagined her. She's not me." And uh, of course, years later, I read it. I, you know, I've read bits of it and thought, "Oh God, she does sound a lot like me." <laughs> and but but historical section, they don't sound like me at all. And, and I realized I liked writing the historical stuff more. The, the contemporary stuff, because it wasn't about me. It's like you're really stepping away from yourself. And that felt very cleansing. And, you know, we read to escape and we also write to escape, too. And so as a result, I think it's really interesting that you've said, you know, the contemporary frame is a way of making it relatable to the readers, sort of like softening it, sort of sugarcoating the historical to ease you into it, to make you feel like, oh, there's a reason why there's a connection. Yeah. I think what I just figured after writing that book is I'm not going to sugarcoat it anymore. You either jump right into that history or you don't. And if you, you know, you don't you don't connect to it and if I can make the writing strong enough and the research strong enough and create a believable world for the reader, they can get right into that and not need this conduit that leads them in. And so I never have had a, a a contemporary frame ever since, and it's always ended up being historical. and And I'm I'm surprised as anybody, but then I think writers do tend to write unless you're writing autobiographically, and a lot of writers do that, but some, a lot don't. They they want to escape too, so they escape by. You know, thinking up a crime they would never commit themselves, or they escape to the future in science fiction, or they write about other countries that they haven't lived in. So there's a lot of ways of escaping, and I guess my way of escaping is jumping backwards. So I just have done that and haven't looked back.
2: It feels very brave.
1: <laughs> <laughs> no, nah. I feel like we're in a session now. It's great. Um, so far, how's it been for you? And I, you know, I'm always happy to take constructive criticism. Is there anything you want more or less of in this mentoring process?
2: Wow, that's a good question. I have loved it. I feel like I I said, when you say a word, it could be saying 10,000 words because I take it very much to heart. <laughs> um, wow. And, and I think that it's... I think we have a good setup right now. I like having a conversation with you about it, thinking big picture, um, but also the line edits that you gave me really helped me, as I said, sort of take it through the whole thing. Not perfectly. Yeah. Um, but think thinking about it as I continue working, right? Thinking about those questions around context and language and, Overwriting and all those kinds of issues so that that to me has been tremendously helpful. I am just about at the end of my first draft. I couldn't sleep the other night, and I wrote the ending so <laughs>
1: oh. Oh yes good because I've read I've read everything you've written given to me so far so I want more okay I want well to I, happens, I will so. I
2: will be sending that to you and I, I'm really curious I actually kind of wrote two endings to tell you the truth so it's a it's a bit of a choose your own adventure you get to have a you get to, to be you <laughs> get to have a and b and you know it, it was also the right moment for me because had I just written a couple of chapters I don't think it could have been as fruitful a relationship, right? I think I needed to be as far along as as I was to have this, at least for me, work in that way. But yeah, I guess once you've read the end of it, we can think about what am I doing with this thing that I have written and And once it's been revised and revised again, I think that that will be something that I would love your guidance on. Sure. Well, Karen, I think my
1: goal in this now that I've heard that your husband puts <laughs> novel in quotation marks, I know that this will have been successful if you remove the quotation marks both in your head and with him to say, yes, I'm, I've written a novel. Yeah. Not a novel in quotation marks, but a, a novel. And that's, uh, I'll be satisfied.
2: All there. right. That sounds good to me.
1: All right. Thanks. This has been a lot of fun talking. It has
2: been wonderful.
0: For more information on the Genesis Foundation, visit genesisfoundation.org.uk, where you can also find details about the Genesis Jewish Book Week Emerging Writers Program. Simply follow the links under Partners. Tracy Chevalier's official website is tchevalier.com. To listen to more episodes in the Genesis Foundation's Artistic Minds podcast series, please subscribe and do consider leaving Artistic Minds a review. And look out for another episode of Artistic Minds very soon.